The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Monday, March 26, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I cannot bring you all of the important, very important coverage of the Stormy Daniels affair, affair day storm. Was the president spanked by a Forbes magazine? If that were to happen today, now that Forbes has gone mostly digital, would you have used a laptop or a tablet? These are the questions I cannot even ask. But on this day, the White House would only answer this way when asked about the affair. Here's spokesman Raj Shah from the podium. With respect to uh, that interview, I will say the president strongly clearly and uh, has consistently denied these underlying uh, claims. And the only person who's been inconsistent is the one making the claims. So you heard what he said there, and that's about as far as it went. But this is how news organizations described that response. Time, White House says President Trump doesn't believe Stormy Daniels' account of affair. The Hill, White House, colon, Stormy Daniels' claims of affair with Trump are not accurate. And CNN says the White House says President Trump continues to deny that he had an affair with Stormy Daniels. You know what? I agree with the White House. He did not have an affair. An affair? It was at best bonkery. And from Stormy's side of the things, not the best bonkery. Perhaps the White House simply would not want to respond to allegations of affair by using that word. Because, you know, affair to me invokes the heart, the soul, weak emotions, anathema to a president who prizes strength. Perhaps if this question were flatly asked, just put out there, did the president make the beast with two backs with Ms. Daniels, we'd get a different answer. Perhaps just a simple inquiry... Has the leader of the free world, on at least one occasion, made Congress with Ms. Clifford? Perhaps this will all be explained when Sarah Huckabee Sanders goes to the podium and says, the President of the United States does not screw or bonk or boink, as some press accounts would have you believe. What the President does is he makes love. And when love is made, believe me, you will know about it. On the show today, the stupidest things that were said this Sunday, and there's a lot of stupid to go around, just a day ago, but in a way, a lifetime. But first, we're going to deal with some art, artfully, I hope, here on the gist of the man called, because he was indeed Hitler's art dealer. So here on The Gist, we rarely cover art, though everything we cover, we do artfully. But we have been, over the years, kind of tracking this one trove of art, which is the art that was essentially looted from Jews by Hitler. And Hitler's art curator was a man named Hildebrand Gerlitt. His son, Cornelius Gerlitt, inherited, as much as one can inherit stolen art, over a thousand works. And in an unrelated tax case, German officials stumbled across these works. This was five, six years ago. And what's been happening since then is they've been figuring out what to do with the works. Well, they recently closed the first major exhibition of the works in Bonn, Germany. A new exhibition of the works will be opening in Berlin, Germany. And covering all this for us and talking about it over the years is Mary Lane, who's the former chief European art reporter for the Wall Street Journal, whose forthcoming book is called Hitler's Last Hostages, about these artworks. Hello, Mary. How are you? 
Hello, I'm well. Thank you for having me, Mike. So you went to the show in Bonn and the show in Bern? I did. I went to both shows to see the artworks themselves finally after devoting so much of my life to this, but also to see you know, how the museum's kind of framed them and and spun the cases and then also how you know the ordinary people who went to the exhibitions thought of them. Right. So the museum in Bern seems like a weird decision to have some Swiss museum exhibit them except that was the museum that the Gerlitt family chose to give these works to again insofar as it was their choice to give these stolen works. Yes. So that's a really interesting thing. So just quickly to recap for um, our listeners who haven't been following this case the whole time, these works were taken from Cornelius Gerlitt, the son of Hitler's art dealer, Hildebrand. They were taken from him by the government in February 2012. And then it came public in November 2013, which is when I started covering it, that the German government had taken all of these works and not told anybody about them. Obviously, Cornelius, the son, was very angry about this. He was in his 80s, his health was ailing, and he was, in many cases, rightfully annoyed that these works had been taken from him without due process, so he hadn't been charged with any crimes. Uh, And he decided, he knew he was going to die from a heart condition, and he decided, much to people's surprise, that um, that he was going to bequeath the works uh, to somebody. And he, his first priority was it's definitely not going to be in Germany. So he had right. no grandchildren, no nieces, nephews, no children. And so he, he had done a lot of his shady gray market dealings with an auction house in Bern, Switzerland. And the owner of that auction house was very close to the Kunstmuseum Bern, so the art museum in Bern. And that is how he decided in a very surprise move to bequeath all of his works to this very small museum. You know, people hear about Bern being the capital of Switzerland, but because Switzerland's a confederacy, it's really just a super tiny town. Yeah, the biggest in that particular canton. So just give me a sense of the exhibit. Uh, How many works? How were they displayed? What context was given to them? The one in Bern focused on the works that Hitler deemed degenerate art. So the majority of artists that Hitler considered degenerate were actually not Jewish, but they were artists that Jews favored. And they portrayed such scandalous things as women having sexuality or black people being humans, somebody not having a perfect body, or for example, portraying Mary the Virgin in a state of discomfort after Jesus was born. When we think about this degenerate art, a lot of it is like you look at it and you're like, wow, that is very sexually explicit. But a lot of it was just more innocuous works, you know, like Yeah, like a black mother cradling her child. Like, God forbid, black people have maternal instincts. Right, and and just going beyond that, it does seem to me that beyond all the horrors of the Nazi regime, just in terms of art, if you're only going to allow the idealized presentation of the human form, you're not going to get very interesting art. Then again, Hitler wasn't a very interesting artist. That's one of the things that's really fascinating about this is Gerlitt justified what he was doing by saying, I'm going to rescue a lot of these works that Hitler hates. So that is what is on display in Bern and as people can see in this Berlin show. But after the war, he didn't help anybody get these works back. So people came to him and said, you know, these works were stolen from us. Do you have any idea where they are? And he was like, no. That's really fascinating about the Bern. Hmm. And the, the Bonn exhibit is more works that Hitler would have actually approved of and that Gerlitt, for various reasons, ended up keeping for his collection as opposed to selling to the master Fuhrer Museum that Hitler was planning. So would a museum goer know about the provenance of this art? 
Well, people who go to these exhibitions, I mean, it's quite fascinating because, first of all, provenance research is, to be fair, insanely difficult. The Gurlitt case, for example, they purposefully burned a lot of their records. And that is a testament to their complicity with Hitler, because if you can say, I have a legally acquired a work from a prestigious family, that ups the value of the work. The only case in which that wouldn't up the value of the work is if you stole it from the family. So people going to these exhibitions will get a really good idea of the links to which Gurlitt went to save the artwork, but to destroy documents proving where he got them. Not only the exhibitions, but a lot of the international press and particularly German press didn't cover the fact that if you look very closely at the at the captions for the exhibition, each work gives as much of the provenance as we know so far next to it, which is wonderful. But several of them say that they come from a private collection in southern Germany. And that is a gross euphemism for uh, Hildebrand Gurlitt's daughter and her family. And when I asked, when I said to the museum, um, you know, people coming to this exhibition and looking on the wall, they're going to see works and you've euphemistically described them as from a private collection, but we know they're still from this family. Can you compel the family to give back stolen works? You know, it's 2018. The museum said no. So you just made a reference to if uh, museum goers, if someone was going to the museum, saw that they wouldn't know. Well, you you actually, this isn't a hypothetical. You talked to many of the people who went to the museum. So what was their impression either of the art or how the art came to even be seen? There was a lot of curiosity among people from China and Japan and Korea about this idea of of how much of the modern art world has been shaped by these works being bought and sold in the 1940s and 50s and going abroad. When we think about the Japanese art market, for example, that that came in the 1980s with the economic boom, many Japanese people, for example, were very curious about the fact that, you know, what Girl It Did had such a profound effect on growing the Japanese art market. So in that sense, you've got this really horrible act that creates an unintentional diversification of the art market in in terms of the cultural outreach it has. I mean, I talked to one really fascinating West German couple uh, who were clearly very wealthy and in their 70s and spoke fluent English and fluent German and and were very cultured. And it was fascinating because I was like, how is this I would never have tied this into something like, you know, the political climate of 2018. But this couple, they said, you know, we're poking fingers at America for Trump or we're poking fingers at Brexit. But maybe we need to think about, you know, what do we need to improve on here in Germany in terms of righting the wrongs of our past? And maybe we're being a bit lazy about doing that as we're so concerned with the politics of other countries. So these were people who went to the museum who essentially found fault in the way that German authorities, be them museum officials or maybe even actual elected officials, because there is that component of it, uh, were contextualizing the art. Why does anyone who has the ability to do anything about it, why are they either dragging their feet or just saying to you, we have no plans to give it more attention, uh, give it more context, you know, not speak in obfuscatory terms about where these works came from. And you have to be very careful here. There's a very German mindset of the rule of law. Doing this is legal. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether it's moral. Gurlitt pointed out openly, you know, the son Gurlitt, well, the father Gurlitt pointed out when he was doing it, 
in the 1930s, he, he would, he wrote in his journals, he was like, well, like I would have had qualms doing this in the twenties, but now they're, you know, parliament has passed a law saying I can take works of art confiscated from these people. And so it's legal. So I don't see the problem. And then you see that happening, you know, with his son in, in 2013, you know, his son openly said to the, to the media, to us, he said, well, look like under German law, if these Jewish families wanted their stolen art back, they had to come to me by 1970 and they didn't. So it's legally mine. Who cares if it's moral? It's legal. And I think that's, that's sort of where that the older couple that I spoke to in West Germany, you know, where they're saying that right now, a lot of countries, America and, and Britain and, and Germany are struggling with this idea of, okay, there's a difference between what's legal and what's moral. And there's a difference between, you know, at what point does not protesting become complicity with immorality? If there was if there was a government advocating, not not a person, but a government, maybe it would be different. I mean, earlier this month, right, France agreed to return plundered artifacts to Benin. There mm-hmm. is these these are thousands of year old or hundreds of year old artifacts. No one knows the person if there ever was even that concept of a person owning the artifacts. You know, France returned to Egypt some three thousand year old statuettes last year. So it seems like the trend in the art world is to at least uh, seriously consider this, but not the trend with these specific arts in this specific case. One of the the sad things about this, and and one of the things I hoped wouldn't turn out to be true, but was true from from looking at this case, is that there are so many works in the show that are breathtakingly beautiful, and and many of them were not looted. Many of they weren't looted, but he wouldn't have had the money to buy the works if he hadn't been working for Hitler. Yeah. So there's that aspect where the museums will say, okay, well this wasn't a looted work of art, and I'm like, okay, like if you're you know some massive cocaine dealer and you buy like a, a, you know, gold desk with money from cocaine, like, (laughs) yes, you didn't steal the desk, but you wouldn't have had the money to buy the golden desk if it weren't for your dealing cocaine. So I think there's that aspect. But one of the things that I just find really sad is that they did such a thorough job of laying out the credible aspects of this. So, so showing the works that that were not looted, but then they often fudged the captions about works that clearly either were taken or currently belong to this family and there's nothing they can do about it. So finally, where do these works go next? So these works, um, so that's going to be about 250 works from Bonn and 168 works from Bern out of a total of 1,300. Many of them will be coming to Berlin at the end of the year and through early next year. And these are just so many amazing works by um, George Grosch, Monet, uh, Manet, Rodin. There's some gorgeous Rodin statues. Uh, really just some top museum quality items that have been lost for 70 years. So they'll be showing there and then they won't be going out of the country, obviously, because Germany is scared that they will be sued if they go out of the country because so many of these works might have been stolen. So after that, uh, they are all the property of this tiny little museum in Bern, Switzerland, which is roughly the size of Mesquite, Texas. Mary Lane, former chief European art reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and her forthcoming book is named Hitler's Last Hostages. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. 
And now the spiel. I cannot fully summarize to you everything that goes on during the Sunday shows. The shows. We know the president gets his staffing ideas about the generals from the shows. So I try to watch all the shows. Okay, that's a lie. I don't try at all. No, I couldn't. I listen to them on double speed. And sometimes, almost all the time, I get through the uh, three that are in the broadcast networks. And then I try to hit the uh, State of the Union on CNN and Fox, the Fox News Sunday, which is uh, Fox News on Sunday. So I did listen. And I want to touch on some highlights, lowlights, really. There was uh, the occasional infelicitous phrase. This was Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa on Face the Nation. Well, I support allowing those uh, transgenders that can serve. I believe they should serve. But I've asked transgenders myself, you know, if you are are willing to lay down your life um, beside mine, I would welcome you into our military. But again, there are standards that have to be met. But if there are transgenders that, that meet those qualifications, certainly I would gladly have them serving in our United States military. And I, as a heterosex, Fully support those transgenders, and unless you are a disabled or possibly a blind, then you as a transgender can apply to be an Army American. Weird, just a weird, just a weird way to say it, I say. And then, speaking of the weird, Rick Santorum, former Republican senator from Pennsylvania, he was on CNN's State of the Union, giving some life advice to the children. Is this really all about politics, or is it all about keeping our schools safe? Because it is about keeping our schools safe then we have to have much broader discussion than the discussion that's going on right now. How about kids, instead of looking to someone else to solve their problem, do something about maybe taking CPR classes or trying to deal with, with situations that where there is a violent shooter. But that you how can are they looking at other people? To to, I, I would ask you, they took action. Yeah, they took action to ask someone to pass a law. They took action to ask someone to pass a law. They did that because we live in a democracy and asking someone to pass a law is what a non-elected official, also known as a citizen, should do? Do I need to explain that laws affect actions and children can't pass them without the adults? Maybe Rick Santorum is on to something or on something that I'm not. And then there was this really, really odd one. This is Chris Ruddy, the guy who runs Newsmax. He's what's called the Trump whisperer, as if whispering would really get to Donald Trump. So Chris Ruddy, constantly being asked to explain Trump to be to be a mouthpiece, and he was on ABC's This Week. And you know what? At the end of the day, the poll numbers for the president are up. Gallup has him at a record 40 percent, uh, the Rasmussen at 48 percent approval. A record 40 percent. A record. What a record. How is that a record? Let's go back. A week after being inaugurated, Gallup polled and it showed that 45% of Americans approved of Trump. Americans are a hopeful lot. And he has hit 40% this calendar year. Actually, the 40%, that was two weeks ago. The latest Gallup poll shows that he's at 39%. So what is the record? I'm trying to figure out what's the record about that 40%. And then Jonathan Bernstein of Bloomberg writing in an unrelated matter pointed it out to me. It's the worst of any polling era president this many days into his first term. After Trump, the lowest, 431 days into office are Harry Truman at 45%, Gerald Ford at 45.5%, Ronald Reagan at 46%, Barack Obama 48%, Jimmy Carter 50%. Trump has been in last place and usually by an even larger margin for almost his entire term. But then the most incredible thing happened. Again, it was Chris Ruddy and he was asked about all the staff shakeups and here's what he said. 
Uh, the president told me he's perplexed by all of these reports. There's chaos at the White House or, or mass staff changes. Um, he told me that he thinks the White House is operating like a smooth machine, his words. Now, look, I don't doubt for a second that these were Trump's exact words. I trust Ruddy as a reporter. We know that because Trump has said as much. This administration is running like a fine-tuned machine. What's incredible here is that there really is no chaos as Trump sees it. The normal explanation is that he thrives in chaos or he's used to chaos. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that that's the important thing to consider in this situation. It's true. He, uh, he thrives in chaos, which pretty much means he's a scattered guy. So he likes putting other people on the wrong foot. So maybe they're degraded to the mental state that he's in. Fine. But here's what I think is really going on. The job that he is doing is different from the job the media is expecting him to do or grading him on. And it's an incredible thing, the continued disconnect between the man and the job he's expecting to do, the, the job that many of us are still acting as if he's doing. The media, uh, citizens, right-thinking Americans, want to hold the president accountable. But it's impossible to hold a person accountable when that person is fundamentally not doing the job you're trying to hold them accountable to. What we want is for Donald Trump to run the country or to be more specific to direct the actions of the executive branch and all the agencies thereof. Trump has no interest in this. Trump is simply putting on a show. Okay, you're saying we've heard this one before. It's not that it's untrue, but it's a little cliched at this point. No, I'm making a slightly different point. It's this, that every man to possess the office of the president has had a deep and abiding opinion about the policy directions of the country. Their methods differed, their strategies differed, but each one took the job primarily to achieve policy outcomes. Trump isn't just the first person who never served in public office or in the military to become president. He is the first person not to care about policy outcomes to become president. And this means he's not doing the job we think he's doing. All he wants to do is continue being a showman. We call him a businessman, but his business is that of branding Trump on buildings or steaks or vodka or universities. He's a brander. What is a brand except an extension of the show to a physical property? Who's the head of HUD or the Department of Education or what's going on in Puerto Rico? It doesn't matter. It simply does not matter. He doesn't want to do it right. He doesn't want to do it wrong. It doesn't matter. He could soon fire the well-regarded head of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin. Do you think before two weeks ago we ever thought of David Shulkin? The name David Shulkin did not cross President Trump's mind for months at a time, I can assure you. Before Ben Carson and the Hutch, when was the last time he stopped for two seconds and said, HUD? I wonder how HUD's going. Other presidents have been hands-off, have been non-interventionists. That was their policy. Hoover famously, he personally knew the crash was coming. He sold his stocks, but he still wouldn't intervene on behalf of the government because he didn't think that was his role. It was a foolish choice, but he was trying to achieve a policy outcome. Trump is in the job for personal enrichment and, sure, some version of ego gratification, but he is putting on a show that's all he was doing. And that's how we have to evaluate him. We can't say he's causing chaos. Chaos is besides the point to what his goal is, which is to put on a show. Do we say the show Breaking Bad was chaotic because it had all these plot elements? Because Walter White was always getting himself into scrapes? No, that's what made the show so compelling. Do we think of law and order as out of control? 
because every episode someone was murdered? No, that's what the show's about. He ran a show on TV. It was called The Apprentice. It was about pitting people against each other. He's just continuing to put on this show. Lots of politicians get charged with being a showman. It usually means something like they have more style than substance or you're putting on a show of addressing an issue when you're not really addressing an issue. You know, you're, you're trying for a photo op or you're putting on a show over here to do the real business, your real nefarious business that you don't want us to pay attention to over there. That's not Trump. Trump simply has no policy aims. He's there to create conflict and drama, and he believes that he'll come out on top afterwards. The finely tuned machine that he speaks of is the flat screen TV and your iPhone, and they're working just fine for him. That's it for today's show. Show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienemay. He uh, prefers making bacon with care and tenderness because grease fires can really splash on you and hurt. Daniel Schrader also produced today's show. He's given to doing the wild thing with the lesser-known works of Tone Loke playing on the hi-fi. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, knows on an intellectual level there needs to be terms to describe such acts, but when she hears such vulgarities as pestering the accountant or taking turns on an industrial loom, she just chafes. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Now, as a canoe owner, this guy knows that sometimes your vessel loses its luster and could, in fact, do for a fresh coat of shellac. But you can't advertise that on Craigslist. The gist. I do not know about Stormy Daniels' legal case, but I would not be surprised if the next revelations come from within the family quarters of the White House. What I'm saying is, if SCOTUS don't notice, FLOTUS could alert us about POTUS coitus. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.